Well, if you've been around uh, Brian here, you know that I am a person who enjoys history, biblical history, Civil War history. But there's a saying out there that those who forget about history are destined to repeat it. And just from a biblical example, I think of as you read through the first kings and chronicles, you look at the kings of Judah especially. And as the king goes, so the nation goes, if you will. If, if that king was faithful to God, the people were faithful to God. If the king was unfaithful to God, then the people were unfaithful to God. And I just kind of think about our own our own society. It seems that character in our society is becoming more and more rare because character is becoming more and more rare in our elected leaders. More specifically, how can we expect our citizens to act in a civil manner when our leaders don't act in a civil manner toward one another? Perhaps the, the uh, leaders we have elected are really a reflection of who we are as a society. Also, advances in prosperity, science, and technology do not necessarily make us a better people. Sometimes, some, in some ways, it's made us worse. In the 20th century, it's made us more efficient in killing people. More people died in the 20th century because of our technical advances than in previous history combined. We've gotten really efficient at killing people. As far as kind of a common thing, I would say tablets and smartphones have become kind of standard for all of us. I don't know that it's made us any smarter, though. It means, means we have less need to retain information. Our attention, attention span gets smaller, and instant gratification seems to be the fare of the day. It's depleted our social skills and knowing how to relate to one another face-to-face. Probably the best case scenario, though, is, is our medical technology. It's advanced by leaps and bounds. We can do amazing things. Transplants of hearts and, and other, other body parts. And even here at Mayo, we're trying to take stem cells and grow body parts. So if someone needs something, they can have that. But there's a dark side to bioethics as well. As we try and decide whose lives are worth living and whose lives are not. Worth living. And even now, as we're struggling about medical care in the United States, we're asking the question who should get medical care and who doesn't get medical care? Other things I could point to very quickly, you know, principles like um, debt. The borrower is the slave to the lender. Also, just as far as getting things, getting everything you desire does not necessarily bring about happiness that we think it will. As you look at the case of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And tragedy and misfortune is not necessarily evidence or sin or divine judgment. As you look at the book of Job. Also, that God's grace is not a license for us to do as we please. And today, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, as he looks at the children of Israel, a people who were redeemed, a people who were released by the very hand of God from Egypt, sustained by his hand in the desert, God's original covenant people find themselves in constant rebellion and fail to enter into the promised land. 
It has something to say to the Corinthian church. It has something to say to us. Who, when we sometimes downplay our own sin and rebellion against God. So let me read what the Apostle Paul had here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most, most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying, by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will, now let, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into God's word today. Lord, this is your word. We started out today thinking about the word encouragement. That is to give courage to one another. And would you give us courage, Lord, today through your word to live for you. A God who has reached down into our lives. A God who sent his son to pay for our sin. To give us new life through his resurrection in your Holy Spirit. So open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. And do your amazing grace work in us. If some of that is changing our mind and repentance, we want to do that. But we want to be encouraged by what you have to say to us today. So use your words. Use my words, Lord, to accomplish your purposes. Get me out of the way and let your Holy Spirit shine in me and through me and through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in this series through 1 Corinthians, you know what the major theme is. It's grace in the mess. Here's a church that is struggling with all sorts of issues of sin. Some of which are sexual immorality, that's marriage, that's sex outside of marriage. Some of it is with food sacrificed to idols. And we don't think too much about that, but it's something where basically people were, uh, I guess, engaging in pagan sacrifice saying these aren't really gods at all. Just for their, for their stomach's sake. Paul Con, as we were here last week, Paul contrasts his own life for going 
rights that he thought were his as an apostle. And talking about how he went great to great lengths to bring the gospel to people. And he called the Corinthians to live in a manner like that as a runner running to win, as we saw in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Talking about going into strict training, being in self-control of all things, that he might attain an imperishable crown. And Paul himself, the apostle of grace, says, I'm doing this so that at the end, after preaching this good news, I myself will not be disqualified, meaning I'm not going to be disqualified by allowing my own flesh to master me, to lead me to sin, to lead me to unbelief, that I might not persevere in my faith. Ultimately, Paul was concerned about the spiritual health of this church, that they not might not be led astray by their sin and that their faith would fail. And so now Paul's taking a different tact as he looks historically at the people of God, Israel, and what they have in common. So the first thing that they have in common with this church in Corinth and with us is a similar spiritual relationship, verses 1-4. through four. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. First thing I want you to note in verse 1 is that, that Paul does not make a distinction between these Old Testament believers, Israel, and the now people of God, which was Corinth. He sees Israel as the spiritual forefathers of these Corinthian believers, as the people of God. There's one plan for salvation. One plan for salvation. It's just fulfilled in Christ. From their part, Paul starts to draw out a comparison, an analogy, as he tells their story. And he starts with the people getting ready to cross the Red Sea, leaving, exiting Egypt, if you will, from their slavery in Egypt, which is found in Exodus 13 and 14. And Paul calls it a baptism of sorts into Moses. And he starts out pointing to a cloud. We may wonder, what, what does the cloud have to do anything with anything? But God sent a cloud to demonstrate his physical presence with the people, guiding Israel out of Egypt toward the waters of deliverance, which happened to be the Red Sea, if you will. He also takes this cloud and puts it between the people of Israel and the, the army of Egypt who decided they're going to pursue Israel now. And it was the evidence of God's dwelling presence with his people. In contrast, or likewise, the Christian has the Holy Spirit who guides people toward deliverance in Christ and is the indwelling presence of God in the believer. He's talking about the presence of God is with them. And then the crossing of the Red Sea, he talks about as a baptism. They get to this sea and God parts it and they have to go into it. You have to walk into it. Yes, they're underwater, but they're not in the water per se. And in some ways, it seems like death. If they would have stayed there at the edge of the Red Sea, they certainly would have incurred death at the hand of the Egyptian army. 
But now they're going through the sea, and it's like if this if this water wall doesn't hold, we're going to die. But it ends up being their final deliverance from Egypt and from slavery. God's people were delivered by his very hand. Baptism the same way. When we go under the water, it may seem like a death. Death to our old way of living as a slave to sin. And a deliverance from sin. It's God's mighty hand through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got a baptism, common baptism per se. Both people are, are initiated into God's, as God's people. They're delivered and they have a relationship with God. So he continues on in verse three. Israel was nursed in the wilderness with spiritual food, which if you know the story in Exodus chapter 16, it's a strange thing called manna. It's a little flake that gathers on the ground every day for the people of God in the wilderness for 40 years. God provides it. It doesn't come from anything. It doesn't come from the cactus that are out there. It doesn't come from the ground. It comes from God himself every day for 40 years. It corresponds to the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus, who will give his body that gives us salvation and spiritual nourishment. And then in verse 4, he talks about giving, they were given spiritual drink from a spiritual rock. It was real water from a real rock, as you read about in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers 20, just a few cases of that. But there's a supernatural source. And Paul says that source, that rock ultimately, is actually Christ himself. Christ himself. Denoting that Jesus is the rock, just as Yahweh, or the Lord, is called the rock in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 4, 15, 30, and 31. Christ is present there, providing water in the wilderness for 40 years. And remember, this is a place where there is no water. There is no food. In correspondence to the cup of the new covenant, a spiritual drink representing the shed blood of Christ. So the big picture, as Paul is just trying to paint this picture, and the commonality is this. That these are God's people. They have a special relationship of redemption by the very hand of God. They are recipients of God's care, of God's sustenance, God's spiritual nourishment. They're in a privileged position, just like the Corinthians. But here's the kicker. Just because you've experienced or incurred God's supernatural care does not guarantee a continued response of faith. And so there are similar spiritual lessons to be learned. And look look what verse 5 says. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on, on evil things as they did. The end result of somebody's life is probably a good evaluation if you want to imitate somebody. In this story, this was not how it was supposed to end. See, God's redeemed people were supposed to travel into the wilderness. They're supposed to be there to receive the law of God, to understand their new identity as God's chosen people. They're no longer slaves. 
And this is supposed to take place in about a year and a half's time. And they were able to, supposed to be in a place where they're going to see God provide, God take of them, take care of them, and then enter into the promised land. But if you know the story, it ends up being 40 years until a whole generation dies out, and only two people of that generation will be allowed to enter, Joshua and Caleb. Something went wrong. And this is a negative example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. And here's just, just an observation I think that's true of us spiritually. We want the blessing of God. We want him in our life. But we don't want to go through the wilderness. We don't want to go through that desert. We don't want to go through that proving place where God tests us and asks us to trust him. Trust him against adversity. We don't want to have our faith put to the test. But he does. He does to prove our faith and prove, um, grow us. So there's a similar spiritual temptation that these people went through. First of which is idolatry. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is out of Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. It was more than a, a year after the people have left Egypt. They are now camped out at Mount Sinai. God has given them the Ten Commandments, and now Moses is back up on Mount Sinai receiving the rest of the law. And it's about over a month now. And the people are getting impatient. They're getting a little stir-crazy. They're getting a little, they're wondering what happened. We don't know what happened to this Moses guy. And as we often want to do, they decide, well, you know, Moses isn't here. We're going to take charge. Maybe this is a great time for a do-over. Because I, I don't know that I like all that this Moses has brought as far as understanding God. So maybe we can make God more into our liking. And so they ask Aaron to make, and I don't make for us gods that will go before us. And Aaron complies. He makes this golden calf, by the way, which is a violation of the second commandment, which is you shall not make for yourself any graven images, right? And basically they turn around and say, God, you're so great. You're a cow. You're a cow. And they ate the food that he provided in the manna. And then they said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And they decided to enter into pagan revelry. Some sort of probably licentious dancing. Here's the sin of idolatry. If we make God in our image, we make him like us, so he caters to our wants and our desires. And it's the height of human arrogance. We decide to negate everything the Lord has revealed about himself in truth and tell him who he is. We tell him how to operate. And the Corinthians themselves were no strangers to idolatry. Most of them came out of a, of a, Gentile believers came out of that background. And to eat at a table of a pagan shrine was to participate in the worship 
of an idol. But some of these, you know, Gentile uh, Christians had come out of that background, and now they said, well, you know, we've been told that these idols are not gods at all. So we want to go back and eat at these tables where there's good meat, there's good prime rib there, okay? And we want to participate in the, in the sacrifices because we want to exercise our Christian freedom for the sake of their appetites. And for some, it was, again, entering back into idolatry. And for others, it was causing them to stumble in our own lives. Idolatry. In our society, we don't have a lot of pagan shrines, right? But our, our idolatry goes in two directions. We custom-make God to fit our own lifestyle. We upgrade Him to fit the values of the world around us. We make sure that He's okay with the sin that we struggle with. Or number two, we attribute the life-giving power that alone God possesses and give it to some created thing. Whether money, fame, power, technology, experience, or creation itself. And that's the temptation of us of believers, is to take away the love, the worship, the devotion that goes to the creator of all good things and give it errantly to the good things themselves. One of which is our sensual appetites. The next issue was sexuality or sexual appetites. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This comes out of the incident in Numbers 25. It's called the worship of Baal of Pure. And if you know the story, there was a, a prophet who was called out named Balaam to curse the people of God by the king of the Moabites named Balak. says, okay, Balaam, I know you're tight with God. I want you to go curse these Israelites because they're coming into my land. And Balaam goes, I can't. God's blessed them. What am I going to do? But Balaam doesn't want to go away empty-handed. So he says, tell you what, Balak, here's what you do. You can't, I can't curse them, but you can cause them to curse themselves. Send out your ladies to draw them in to worship your god, Baal, in sexual prostitution. And I mean real sexual prostitution at a worship site. And you will cause them to stumble. You'll cause them to curse themselves. It will lead these people astray from the living God and God will have to punish them. And number two, it'll cause them to worship in a perverse manner, distorting God's plan for sex, which is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And it worked. God, when the people of Israel get sucked in, especially the men, God sent a plague. And the only thing that stopped it was the zeal of a man named Phineas, who was the high priest's son. When two of the leader's children came into the camp, in the Israel camp, and they were doing this in a tent, and Phineas went in with a spear and pinned them both to the ground. 
Kind of a brutal situation. But that's what stopped this. For the Corinthians, sexual immorality was rampant. And some were looking to their freedom in Christ to do as they pleased. And Paul responds in chapter 6, if you've been with us, saying, no, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Honor God with your bodies. And here's the truth. Sex is a very powerful drive. Very powerful. It's a good thing. It can create life. It can create family. But it can also be used for wrong. And it can lead us astray to divide our loyalties from the Lord and choose our flesh and our appetites over Him and commit idolatry there. Make it a God. That's why obedience in this area is important. It protects us from unhealthy natural consequences and it also protects us as far as keeping our devotion to the Lord. The third element found in verse 9 is discontentment. And we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. This comes out of Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. So again, this is, remember, this is a 40-year journey. And these are probably the last few years. It had been a long time. And now the people of Israel are taking the long way around Edom to get to where they needed to go. And this is, I'm just going to pick up the story here in Numbers 21, verse 4. And they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Talking about the manna that God had provided. Basically, they're saying, God, this isn't going the way I planned. It's taking too long. This pathway is too hard. And frankly, your provision is not up to snuff. Do you ever feel your own voice saying those things? Israel had lost its awe that God had provided and preserved them in a place where there was no food, where there was no water. And their idolatry in this, at this point is telling God how life should go. Rather than trusting him, rather than following him, come what may, and seeing what he provided, saying, God, no, you're not doing it right. So God gives them an an attitude adjustment. He sends snakes into the camp to bite them. And the people automatically repent very quickly. And Moses is called upon by the Lord to make a bronze snake to set it up on a pole, and if anyone is bit, they look up at the snake, and they are saved. Strange. It's kind of a strange thing. The very thing that that bit them, they would look up and be saved by, if you will. You know, I don't know if the Corinthians had this problem. Save for the fact that many of them struggle with seeking to assume a higher spiritual status than the other. But I think we do. We struggle with this. We look around, see what others have. 
We say, God, what you give me is not good enough. This is not up to par. This is not up to snuff. It is the sin of discontentment. You know what's interesting about this, though? Is that Jesus himself relates to this this incident. Jesus will say in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then the famous words after that, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Strange. Again, what seems to cause, and again, talking about being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. What caused death actually brings life. And I think this is the question for us. Is this an attitude that we have? That's the whole question about this whole section for Paul. And if it's so, if we find ourselves shaking our fists at God in discontentment, to repent. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. And look to the cross. And give thanks. Look to, give thanks for what God has provided in dealing with that sinful attitude. The last attitude that he deals with is rebellion, verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And this is out of Numbers chapter 16. It's an area called Korah's Rebellion. Korah was a Levite who was questioning, along with a couple other men named Dathan and Abiram, questioning God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, and their authority to lead. These are the, you know, Moses and Aaron, the guys who led them out of Egypt, who God used mightily. Saying, why are you in charge? You aren't doing right. I think we could do better. All the people are holy. You've set yourselves apart. And Moses says, okay. Okay. Tomorrow, Korah, you and your rebels, we're going to have a worship off. We're going to stand before God. We're going to light incense and worship. And whoever God accepts as as worship, that's who God is, is anointed. That's who God has appointed. And if you know the rest of the story... Dathan and Abihu and their crowd and their crowd are swallowed up by the earth, and Korah and his rebels are swallowed up by fire in that situation. But it it's it gets worse because the next day the people of God are upset about this. They're upset about what happens. And they're angry again at at Moses and Aaron saying, You killed the people of God. No, we they didn't. God took care of it. But they're angry. And and God, you know, as they complain against Moses and Aaron, God brings judgment on them. And Aaron has to run into the people with a, a censer of incense to stop God's judgment. A plague takes takes place. It's what uh, Paul's described as a destroying angel. And before Aaron can get there, 14,700 people die. The Corinthians were complaining about Paul, the man who brought them the gospel, was giving them the life-giving word of God. He wasn't wise enough. 
He wasn't eloquent enough. He was too conservative, too restricting. They didn't understand that he was actually probably their best friend. Seeking to correct their soul shipwrecking course that they were heading down. And for us today, you know what? As you look at leadership, it's easy to criticize. It's easy to find fault. Every leader has feet of clay. Moses did. Paul did. This pastor does. Our elder board does. But the question we need to ask always in, in these situations is, did God appoint this man or appoint these men to leadership? If so, we need to take care in bringing criticism and complaining. You might find yourself complaining actually against God himself and how God is working in and through those men. You might find yourself in rebellion against God himself. As Romans 13 talks about that authority has been appointed by God. So Paul concludes this matter in verse 11. These things have happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Learn something from the history of God's people. And by the way, this, what Paul goes through, is just a sample size. Last summer we preached a whole sermon series on this called Lessons in the Wilderness. And if you want to go back there, they're, they're online. And I think these are great lessons to look to. But to understand, these people failed to reach the promised land. And Paul was saying, look, even in my own spiritual journey, I take care of myself to not let my own flesh lead me astray, to lead me into sin, to lead me into a lack of faith. You too. You Corinthians, you're in Christ. But I see you struggling with sexual immorality. I see you struggling with idolatry. Consider this. What's really going on? You think you're standing? As I point to you, what happened to the Israelites? Is this you? Is this you? Do you find yourself in this narrative? Are you allowing sin that you won't repent of? Are you looking to God to justify it? Are you letting it lead you astray? Do you think you're standing when in actuality you're really falling? That's what Paul's trying to get through to his audience. That is what he's trying to get through to us. And again, I, I want to read this passage out of Hebrews chapter 3 that I read last week. But I think it's pertinent and it frames us again in what Paul's trying to get to us. He says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That... Oh, See, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Don't let your sin lead you astray from Christ. And then the last verse, verse 13. There is a promise here. It's good news. 
These temptations are normal, they're common, and they're not beyond what God has provided. You see, there's a similar spiritual way out. Verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You see, these temptations that came, they're common. No one can say, no one's ever experienced this kind of temptation. Yes, it's happened to somebody. Especially it's happened to Jesus, who was tempted in every way, as we as we are. Yet he overcame sin. And number two, God is faithful. He's not going to let you tempted beyond what you can bear. And I, I take issue sometimes with folks that say that God never gives you what never uh, never gives you more than you can handle. Yes, He does. He does it all the time, but he does it in such a way that we need to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And he is faithful to provide a way of escape. He he provides a way out. So when temptation comes, look for that way out that God provides. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but he provides it in order that you can endure it. Trials are not always removed, but we're in a place to endure it. But what if you fail? What if you fail? What if the temptation comes and you fail and you knew it was right, but you didn't do what you knew was right? There's still good news. We can look to the cross. We can look to the one who was lifted up as the snake was in the desert that he might give us life. And I want to end with these words actually out of a different apostle's words. The first letter of John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 where the apostle John says my dear children I write this to you so that you will not sin I don't want you to be led away from sin it's not where you should be going but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only ours but also for the sins of the whole world Paul is calling us away from following up on our sins. And we will not live a perfect life. But in that moment where we do fail, we can still look to him because he is faithful. So that's the message for our hearts today. And again, if you look at this and go, you know what? In all truth, that's me. That's what's going on in my life. then we can repent of that. But don't continue in that. Because that is a pathway of death. That is a pathway where you're being led astray from the living God. We pray for us, and then Brian, we come and close us in worship. Lord, again, this is a challenging word. And you are not letting us be comfortable. A church in Corinth, who had experienced your salvation, your Holy Spirit, and yet they were heading off into error. And Paul calls them to correction in holding up the failures of your Old Testament people, your Old Covenant people. Let us take them to heart also, Lord.
let us be careful in not making you an idol, someone we want you to be. Would you give us grace, Lord, to not be overcome by our sensual appetites, but to make you the Lord of our life in every area. To say no to our flesh and yes to you. Would you give us the grace in those moments where we feel discontent to find our contentment in you? And to say, as we have already sung, your grace is enough. Would you give us grace not to rebel, to trust that you are sovereign and you are taking us down a pathway that might be challenging, that might be tough, but you're using it to shape us into men and women who are more like Jesus. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your good work in us. And to trust you in those moments of temptation. You're faithful. You're going to provide a way of escape. And we can endure it as we look to you. And again, Lord, if we need to repent, to trust in your atoning sacrifice. So do your work in us and through us. In Jesus' name.